The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. This is The Money Show. I am Bruce Whitfield and The Money Show is brought to you by APSA CIB. Voted overall best service business function in Africa by the Euro Money Cash Management Survey 2023. See the chief executive at SPA, Angelo Swartz, is with us. We'll chat to Angelo in just a minute. There's been a huge study into cryptocurrency in South Africa. The Financial Sector Conduct Authority has done the study, trying to figure out the, the depth and the extent of cryptocurrency, what it means, how it works, where it works, and what it is, and trying to figure out whether or not it should be regulated. It'll be an interesting discussion. Catherine Gibson, who's the deputy commissioner at the FSCA, will join us. Uh, later on, we will uh, talk about insurance companies and the massive amount of fraud that people still try to commit. But the most interesting statistic this year, for the first time, they've looked at the amount of fraud being perpetrated within the insurance companies. And more than half of all insurance fraud in South Africa is from the out, from the inside out. It's crooks getting on the inside. It's astonishing. Uh, we'll chat also to Warren Ingram at Galileo Capital and Pavlo Fatidis. All your regulars tonight here on The Money Show. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. Uh, Henry Kissinger has died at the age of 100. Uh, a divisive character, uh, one of the most extraordinary diplomats, though, of the 20th century. The New Yorker's obituary, and I'm going to just read a brief extract from that, saying Henry Kissinger's long and lucrative third act of dining out in New York City began in January 1977 when he was 53. He'd long left academia, his first act, then government, his second, and exhausted by years of global jet-setting and his endless aggressive manipulations, he was in debt. He said upon leaving government that his evening clothes were in tatters. He promptly signed a book contract with Little Brown and Company with a $2 million advance just for the hardcover rights, keeping all the other rights for himself. He would have taught at Columbia with an endowed professorship, but the students promptly cancelled him. So instead, he took out a contract at Georgetown and spent his weekends at Westchester with the Rockefellers and began to write. He always, again, an astonishing figure. And he found a groove and he flexed with the times. And history is going to be really critical of him, I think. But, I mean, there's no denying that he was a significant player in the 20th century. If you're listening to us in Cape Town, you would have heard Mike uh, Wills sharing part of a, a an obituary by Anthony Bourdain, the uh, recent, fairly recently deceased chef, um, having a go at Henry Kissinger. It is a work of absolute beauty. I will share with it, it with you because I, I, I just want that to settle a little bit. And I will share with you what Anthony Bourdain, who spent a lot of time in Asia, thought about Henry Kissinger. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. You can only but hope the future is better for Spa under new management than things have been over the last two years. It's got itself caught up in a massive corporate governance scandal, found itself at the receiving end of a botched software rollout and sold less this year than it did last. It's not good. Angela Swartz is the group chief executive at Spa on the line just from the head office in Durban this evening. Uh, does becoming chief executive the third, I think, in about three Three years, Angelo, feel a bit like the ultimate hospital pass. Just that's an interesting way to start. Good day to you and good day to all your listeners. Um, I'm actually not sure how to answer that question. No, it, it, it doesn't. It's, it's a really exciting opportunity, I think, particularly for somebody who's been in the business for a while um, and and being in a business that I love. This is it's a fantastic opportunity. 
Um, it's been really busy, though. And I have no doubt. I mean, there's a lot of cleaning up to do. The The most recent thing is the havoc wrought by a botched SAP implementation, which caused all kinds of problems. Was that isolated just to KZN or was it, did it become a national problem? No, it was It was only isolated to KZN, um, Bruce. As, as I think you know, we run a number of distribution centers around the country. We've got six of them. Um, and the approach we took to the SAP rollout was to do one distribution center at a time. KZN was the first we had done. Um, and obviously, we have since decided to pause the rollout until we get the system design um, optimized before we start approaching our other distribution centers. So you were cautious, you were conservative, because these things do have a reputation for going catastrophically wrong. What went wrong in the implementation in the first uh, effort in KZN, which is your home, which is your home province, of course? Yes. Um, so there were really four key failures. I think one was was inadequate system design. Um, the second was was the solution readiness just. It wasn't there, and I think we pushed the button a little bit too early. And thirdly, we had some master data issues, and and often the biggest challenge with these ERP um, migrations is migrating data, and and that certainly was a challenge for us. And then lastly, and I think just completely honesty, I think we didn't manage the changes as, as well as we should have. I mean, this is uh, who's responsible when it comes to a project like this. I mean, yes, you give information to the people who are implementing it, but surely this is an SAP implementation. Is it them or is it you? Is it a combination of both uh, where things went wrong? Um, I mean, this is a hugely complex yeah. um, project. So SAP w- was certainly involved. We also have outside impl- impl- implementation partners. That's generally our SAP, uh, SAP work. And then a large contingent of our IT force would, were involved in this, um, led by a steering committee and a number of um, senior executives in the business. I don't want to exaggerate this too much, but it is a little bit like, I don't know, watching a distribution center burn down. It must, that's what it must feel like, because suddenly you lose control of every single aspect of the information that makes it possible to run the business. I mean, IT is the backbone of everything nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I couldn't have said that better myself, Bruce. So I think um, it was a hugely fascinating time, particularly in those first couple of weeks. Um, thankfully, we've now stabilized, but it was a very, very challenging time. It, it means that the, the, the members of SPA, the members of SPA, and this is the, the wonder of this business model, they're independent retailers. They choose to be part of this particular network. They could become pick-and-pay franchisees or other franchisees, but they choose to be SPA franchisees. Um, they, they, they do group buying. They get better prices by virtue of the fact that they're part of net, your network, but they couldn't access that network anymore, so they suddenly had to make a plan. They were you know, on their own, I suppose, in this, and that must have caused some friction, I guess, between head office and the individual spa franchisees? Um, Bruce, I mean, you're 100% right. The, 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 the retailers really struggled um, to get goods from us on a regular and consistent basis or predictable basis is probably a better way of describing it. Um, uh, but to, to some extent, it, it belies the strength and resilience of our model because um, in many other environments, um, customers can only buy from one Spa's arrangement with our with our store owners is one which we refer to as a voluntary buying association, yeah. which means that they're able to source product wherever they, wherever they need you. And um, our retailers in KZN were 
were really resilient and found ways around it, got stock into their stores during the worst of the, the challenge, and then um, weaned back into our business as as things improved. Um, we were also able to, and, and the benefit of having six distribution centers is we were able to isolate the challenges by supporting retailers in and around KZN from um, the adjoining DCs or adjacent mm. DCs in, in Johannesburg and Port Elizabeth. It's a, it's an astonishing. I mean, it's just. I mean, I could. I just. I could picture um, the the sort of the sort of sense of despair when these things don't work. You you say you've paused this implementation because KZN was your region. You were responsible for this region, uh, of course. And I mean, you must have learned a, a huge amount from it. Do you abandon this process? Do you go for another solution, or do you take what you've learned out of KZN and then go one at a time through the others and hope it doesn't go awry again? Um. I- I think that the answer is quite simple for us. SAP is a world-class system. Um, although the implementation went wrong, the, the history, and as you mentioned, these 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 projects are always challenging. Um, a number of top companies in the world are on SAP, and it's probably the world leader in ERP systems. We we certainly are dedicated to rolling this out. We, we're simply pausing it to get, correct the design issues um, before rolling it out. We also, um, it gives us time to learn the lessons we needed to have learned and bring in partners who we believe can um, mitigate the risk for us, including a third-party independence assurance um, provider having a look at the design and giving us mm. comfort. No, it's a big, it's a, it's a really big deal. Um, it's a tough economy in South Africa. Households are struggling. We know that that is there. You've got operations outside of South Africa. Ireland and England seem to be working well. Poland, you're looking after and looking to get rid of. Switzerland has been troubled for a long time. It means that you, you've built up quite a lot of debt over a long period of time as SPA, and most of that debt is euro-denominated and was coming due in September next year. And there was a concern that you wouldn't be able to pay your debts back then, but you seem to have with all this other stuff going on seem to have had time to talk to the bankers and said could we have a bit of a have a bit of a pause here too please yeah so um as you as you rightly point out the majority of our debt um and almost all of our long-term debts it's yeah, is euro denominated um and is serviced in in local currency so as you point out um our irish business sits on a bit of debt um and they service their debt locally so does our swiss business um the polish business has been a bit more of a challenge. Um, and as you mentioned, we had some debt coming due um, towards the middle of next year. And we've been supported by by the banks who have all agreed to move um, those arrangements uh, around so that we can find space to restructure our balance sheet. And so, yeah, as I said at the beginning, a bit of a hospital pass, but you're not feeling like it's a hospital pass. You, 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 you've been crunched, but uh, you, you're back on your feet, yeah. are you? Yeah, look, it's, it's, it certainly is a challenging time for our business, and it's been a, it's been a tough year, but I think um, we've, we feel like we've made a lot of the hard decisions we need to in the lot, needed to in the last few months um, to set ourselves up for, for success. And, and as tough as things are, um, we still generated a... a a huge amount of cash through our operations, which which is obviously a, a big positive and and um, something that we can lean on going forward. 
Angelo, thank you. Angelo Swartz, what a fascinating insight. Thank you very much indeed. The chief executive of SPA, South Africa. He was the head of the KZN division of uh, of SPA. Been elevated, third CEO in two years, was three years, but third CEO in quite quick succession. Uh, company's been through the mill somewhat and, uh, yeah, juggling lots of balls in the air at the same time. I certainly hope that 2024 is just a touch easier. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB, unrivaled pursuit of great service that guides good business for clients. APSA is a registered FSP. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. Financial Sector Conduct Authority has uh, looked into the crypto industry, South Africa's crypto market study. What it was doing was trying to understand better what cryptocurrency is, how it works, where it is, how pervasive it is, and just how everything works around crypto in South Africa. Catherine Gibson is the Deputy Commissioner at the Financial Sector Conduct Authority on the line to us from uh, KZN this evening. And I wonder, Catherine, if you've got a, a, a better grasp of crypto now that you've done the study, and I think it's taken quite a while. Uh, we definitely do, but we are still learning. Um, we brought crypto assets in as a financial product quite recently and this now is the next step to us ensuring that we are adopting a suitably tailored um, regulatory and supervisory approach to crypto assets, specifically financial services provided in relation to crypto assets. Uh, okay, now explain to me, please, what you're seeking to achieve by doing this deep dive study into what is an opaque and quite confusing and um, not altogether clear world. So what we are trying to do is understand how financial services in South Africa are being provided in relation to crypto assets. So it's not about the crypto assets itself. It's about how these are being used and sold to South Africans um, whether it's for investment purposes or the likes. Um, so what we were trying to understand is how similar crypto assets are looking like to traditional financial services, whether they are presenting the same or similar risks, the extent to which consumers, the man on the street, is, is taking them up and, and using them, and how, I've, how our financial services industry might be adapting to this new sector. And, and, and I mean, what have you what have you found with absolute clarity so far? You say you're still continuing to investigate and still continue to look into the sector, but what do you understand about the risk and the position of crypto in what is already quite a complex investment environment? So what we're seeing is that there is a large focus on the retail market segment. Yeah. Um, about half of the businesses that we are that we looked into their whole business is around consumers. So that's that's the man on the street. We're also seeing that the volumes of of of, of trading of dealing in crypto is is raising is rising considerably. Um, the the largest month in, in across November 22. This was over the 22 calendar year, by the way, um, and and the largest was in up to around eight billion. Um, in crypto, which is still very small compared to the rest of assets traded in the financial sector. But it's, it's a lot if you think about the, again, the, the individual man on the street. Um, in terms of risks, 
um, what we are, are being are told, at least, uh, is that um, the risks related to crypto are being described, are being explained to consumers. What we will need to unpack further is how those risks are being explained, whether consumers are actually understanding the risks to the extent that they, that they are taking up these products and services. What we also learned, so that's more on the demand side, what we also learned is that a lot of these businesses are actually quite small businesses with revenue trading of, of under 1 million. Almost half of the businesses um, who, who responded to our, our survey have revenue of, of under a million. Um, also, only 10% of the, the respondents were already existing and are, are licensed as in the financial sector. So what that tells us is that there are a lot of new, probably very innovative um, uh, providers coming into the space, businesses coming into the space, which is exciting because it can bring competition. On the other hand, it also means that there's probably going to be a big learning curve for the industry as well as it adapts to, to, to a quite heavily regulated financial services sector. Uh, at the risk of putting words in your mouth, I don't anticipate that we're going to see any kind of regulation of crypto in South Africa anytime soon. Uh, actually, we all, um, are already moving in that space. So after the first step that we took was to identify or, or name, basically, uh, crypto assets as a financial product under our financial laws. Specifically, we have this act called the Financial Advisory and Intermediary Services Act. But really what you need to know about that is it, it governs how financial products are, are sold and okay. so, so when when will we see regulated crypto products available for sale in South Africa? Okay, and just to be clear, what we're talking about is not the regulated, we're not regulating crypto, we're regulating when this is bought or sold as a financial product. So that, the license applications are actually already uh, entities needed to apply for their licenses closing mm-hmm. today. So they had to have submitted their licenses today um, those I licenses are being reviewed and will be um, confirmed in the first half of 2024. Quicker than I thought. Thank you, Catherine Gibson, uh, Deputy Commissioner at the Financial Sector Conduct Authority. The markets. To Graham Kerner we go with a Kerner perspective. And uh, I don't know, Graham. I mean, you know, the, the market sends confusing signals at the very best of times. And today was a positive day for the market. There were some lovely moves of big companies with big offshore earnings. But the RAND lost value and it just felt a little fizzly and exhausted at the end of a fizzly and exhausting year. <laughs> yeah, Bruce, I think we've, we, tomorrow's uh, December. Um, it's been a hell of a year, and um, yeah, I think people are just, they're fatigued. Um, yeah. So I think exactly to your point, um, quite a bit of activity in some of the big caps, obviously, process NASPAS, um on the narrowing of the loss. I'm sure we'll chat about that in a second. But, you know, the broader SA market, some of the things we watch quite closely and have in our portfolios, quite a few of them didn't even trade, you know, um, and that's, yeah, at the end of the month. So I don't know. It feels to me as though markets are just absolutely um, fatigued and people are quite reluctant to commit with just a month to go. Yeah, I, I, I suspect that you're absolutely right. Uh, this new SPAR chief executive kind of owning the problems of the company. Um, and it, it, I hope the 24 is better for them because the last two years have been catastrophic. 
Sorry, Bruce, which company? Spa. There's, there are lots oh, of catastrophic yeah, companies to choose from, but yeah, Spa in particular is at a rough time. It's a, it's a lost decade, Bruce. If you if you look at that, that share graph, um, you know, it, it's lower than it was a, a decade ago. Um, I must say, it's not a company we, we, we like very much or we hold or we even follow very closely, but, um, you know, really they... They got hit on all fronts. I think the the Irish business, uh, probably a little courtesy of a, a weaker rand, maybe um, up nicely. Um, but Poland, SAP, Fiasco, um, you know, higher interest rates all conspiring against them. So it was awful. I think quite a lot of it is non-recurring. Um, but, yeah, it's just, it's awful. And you have to say a fair amount of that, I think, to be honest, is, is own goals. Absolutely. What about Lewis? It had its own goal period about 10 years ago. It seems to have emerged okay. Its environment, however, in which it trades is tougher than it's been for a very long time. Yeah, Bruce, and I, I mean, if you look at it, um, I mean, if you're a coward, you would say, well, cheapers, um, you know, most of the new sales are in the form of credit. Um, so cash sales going down, credit sales going up, but they're actually managing, seemingly managing that debtors book very well. Um, and it looks really cheap, you know, on a historic of about six uh, good dividend yield. Um, I think if you believe that this team um, is judicious in the allocation of capital, which they maintain they are, then, yeah, it's one of those where, where you know, a little bit of good news could go a long way. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, that share was up 5% today. Um, yeah, but, but definitely um, they're talking about the fact that consumers are under pressure and they're having to buy on credit, and then you've just got to watch very closely how well they, they're able to collect. Uh, we did a nice pattern process yesterday, but it was not a strong performance today, and despite all the difficulties in the world, their businesses, particularly Tencent, seems able to flex and change shape at an extraordinary rate. Yeah, so I think that that's really it, and I mean, I think that's why, why you know, Bob Van Dyke was, uh, was sort of moved along, Um because I think, you know, Tencent has been the story and the rest of it, in, in large part, the market has felt a lot of value has been destroyed. But I think what, we, what we're seeing is a massive narrowing in the loss in the, let's call it the non-Tencent operations, so the, the classifieds and the e-commerce and the food delivery businesses. And I think that's what, what gave the market a lot of cheer because there's not really much they can do about Tencent. We think Tencent is a good story. But interestingly, you know, both Tencent and process itself is is fairly focused on what we call Chindia, you know, China and India. And we believe that is going to be the engine room for growth. And they'll obviously take the emerging market cluster along with them. But that's really where, where future growth is going to come from. So I think they, they're well positioned and the market clearly responded well. Uh, today, up 2% on process. And I think Nasdaq was up about one and a half on the day. Graham Kerner, thank you. With a Kerner perspective on a Thursday evening. 702. Bruce is on the money show. How did that smut make it into the sports bulletin? No good for sports people putting their bodies on the line, literally and figuratively, and uh, in the interests of Movember. It's a really awkward month of the year, don't you find? Where you see somebody you've not seen for a long time and you don't know if they're growing their moustache, ironically, <laughs> uh, for Movember or on purpose. You never can tell. I remember having a conversation with somebody once who looked absolutely appalled that I thought that their facial monstrosity had been done for Movember. It was their style. It was their thing. Yeah, never comment on facial hair in Movember. 
Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. I was astounded by the number of attempts at fraud picked up by the life insurance and investment companies every year. Nearly 9,000 have been picked up in the last year. And you would think in this high-tech world that people would be smarter than trying to defraud insurance companies who are particularly pernickety about fraud because they know that people are trying to rip the ring out of them. Jean Vanickerk is convener of the ASISA Forensic Standing Committee. ASISA is the Associations of Savings and Investments, South Africa, um, and it is the body that oversees investment companies and insurers. Uh, I see a stat that you, the industry is aware of 77 million rands worth of fraud. You prevented more than a billion rands worth of fraud, which means that insurance fraud, you've got less than a 6% chance of getting away with an insurance fraud in South Africa, John. I think that's pretty, it's a pretty good number. Good evening, Bruce. No, absolutely. And I think the positive sign has also been that the losses are trickling down in terms of claims fraud, uh, which definitely does indicate that the industry is winning the fight, um, one case at a time, of course. But people are still doing it. People still think they can get one over you. Why is there this belief that, one, insurance fraud is a legitimate sort of fraud? It's not really fraud. You're just getting your money back. You've paid all this money you've never claimed, so people do that sort of thing. Um, but they also believe that they can outwit and outsmart the systems that you have in place. And the teams of actuaries who I, I can only imagine sitting with um, slide rules and, 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 and protractors and everything else, whatever else you need in the world of being an actuary, and figuring out who's a crook and who's not. Absolutely, Bruce. Um, there's likely a few causal areas. So you would have sophisticated crime rings that do participate in these types of activities. They compromise the entire value chain, funeral parlors, hospitals, um, even sometimes our government departments. But I would wager that some of the causal areas are also very much financial stress and strain due to the economic climate. Um, so as much as there are very sophisticated rings and organized crime units doing this, sometimes the man on the street is under enough or sufficient pressure to justify doing this. Is there evidence of syndicate activity infiltrating the companies? Because more than half of the insurance fraud, 57% of insurance fraud, is from the inside out. It's people that are employed by investment companies, employed by insurance companies, who go in and deliberately seek to defraud. So, Bruce, absolutely. From a volume perspective, sales fraud is definitely something the industry takes very seriously. They do grapple with it, however. Um, this is definitely not the biggest financial impact to the industry, however. Um, very often, sales agents may have a perception of top pressures, etc., and that does drive them to making bad decisions and driving up their sales figures with uh, illicit activities. The bigger problem statements, however, are certainly not sales fraud related. Um, where you're talking about moral risk, where you're talking about impact to society, for example, the claims fraud, the money for murder, those types of matters, the industry definitely okay, takes okay. seriously. Stop, 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 yeah. stop, stop. Right. Claims fraud, we understand. It's when mm. you lie you lie on the claims form. Money for murder. It's even got a title within the insurance industry. I think we kind of have seen some dreadful stories about this over time, but where people take out life insurance on people's lives without them knowing about it necessarily and then have them knocked off. It's one of our national sports. It's horrifying, Bruce. And I would say that to a large extent, the insurance industry is putting a lot of effort behind this into the form of big data, AI, um, biometrics, for example. So there are a lot of efforts to try and curb this behavior. But we also need to acknowledge that many of these products are built for accessibility. Uh, funeral products, for example, you need that money within 24 hours to bury a loved one. So the balance between accessibility of products and managing risk is one that the industry is constantly working to enhance. And of course, for the reason of protecting our ultimate consumer who relies on these products. 
So when we look at it and we look at the, the level of activity, the industry kind of at war with its customers in some respects. A lot of people take offense to it, particularly people with honest claims, and then they get interrogated. They feel often, and I get a lot of complaints about this. Wendy Nola gets complaints about this, saying, I've got a perfectly legitimate claim. And the next thing, this person comes with a briefcase and sits down opposite me and starts treating me like I'm a criminal. I suppose there's a reason for that. Absolutely, Bruce. Um, listen, and the reason's not just to prohibit or to protect companies from loss. Um, there's a very clear societal impact to this. You've got to acknowledge that when a random sense moves from a company to a fraudulent ring or to a syndicate, it's very often not just for them to go and buy luxury vehicles. There's a very direct correlation between white-collar crimes, financial crimes, and ultimately more harder crimes such as drug mulling, arms trafficking, and in some cases human trafficking. I mean, you must you must see some some of the the sordid underbelly of society. I suppose is the best way of describing it. But some people doing astonishing things to try and extract money to fulfil other criminal ends. Just how far down that chain do you guys go? Is it just about protecting one level of fraud, or do you expand your interests to try and understand why it's happening? No, absolutely. So, Bruce, the industry is currently working with um, multiple government organizations as well as law enforcement um, to try and drive a insurance crime as a priority crime prerogative. Um, we also work very closely together with the financial intelligence um, units uh, relating specifically to these types of cross-carrier crimes. Um, so the buck does not stop at uh, a claim decision. It has to follow through to prosecution because ultimately we need to get the bad threat actors off of the streets to protect our communities and ultimately to protect our valid customers. Uh, and, I mean, are the sanctions that are on, on, the, on the statute currently severe enough to dissuade people from committing these crimes? Certainly you appear to be more successful in preventing them, but there's still plenty of people trying their luck. Oh, absolutely, Bruce. Um, listen, it's an ongoing fight. I think as a community, as insurers, as the industry as a whole, together with law enforcement, it is something that we work towards and strive towards on an ongoing basis. Um, of course, we acknowledge that there's much more that can be done, and we're trying to drive those prerogatives as well. But um, I think the current cases that, are, uh, that have recently been reported in the media, as well as the more household names such as Rosemary and Lovu, do send a strong message that this will not be condoned and that the industry will take action. I mean, of the 9,000 fraudulent activities that were picked up last year, how many of those were actually successfully prosecuted? Because that is ultimately the litmus test, I suppose, of whether you win this battle or not. Mm. So, Bruce, I don't have those figures available at present, but um, happy to chat about those perhaps in a follow-up conversation when we do have it. Uh, I mean, it's, but again, is it... A hundred? Is it a thousand? I mean, is it yeah, eight thousand nine hundred ninety-nine? My instinct would be that you know you pick up the fraud. You can't prosecute each one of these people. You have to, on a, I suppose, case by case basis, make a, a a decision as to what is worth prosecuting, what you can definitely win. You prevent the fraud. Sometimes the fraud says, "Do you get away with it?" Of course. Insurers do log the cases with SAPs. Um, we do follow through as far as humanly possible, of course. And again, like we've mentioned, Bruce, it's very much a case-by-case basis um, on the merits of the matter. And very often you'll find that there's a distinguishing factor between whether there's been a loss or a prevented fraud. Um, that, that definitely does play a role in terms of the follow-through. Repeat offenders? There must be plenty of them. People who you know, try different windows, try different doors to get access. Oh, Absolutely. Um, and I think a big role there, Bruce, is the effort from an industry perspective to share data specifically around suspicious information, known fraudsters, known culprits, etc. 
Um, that is the strongest mechanism that we can have as a South African society in the absence of, as you've mentioned rightfully, in some cases, no prosecution following through. Um, in the end of the day, we need to limit access to financial services to these fraudsters in an effort to safeguard the industry as a whole. Thank you, John. Oh, fascinating insight. He is the convener of the ASISA Forensic Standing Committee. Long title for a complicated job. John Finnecak this evening. Fascinating on The Money Show. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. And I mentioned earlier that uh, Henry Kissinger had died. Another uh, prominent figure of more recent times than Henry Kissinger, of course, was a man called Alistair Darling. Alistair Darling was a Labour Party politician who became Chancellor of the Exchequer, Finance Minister of the United Kingdom, and oversaw the management of the global financial crisis as it played out in the UK and was instrumental in the rescuing of British banks and was absolutely instrumental in ensuring that the UK emerged in a less broken state than it went into the crisis. So it was a big deal. It really was. Alistair Darling was 70 years old. He died recently of cancer. Um, and you probably don't remember him. You may remember the name because it is an unusual name. Alistair? Alistair Darling. Yes, Captain Darling. Yes, Darling. No, sir. Anyway, um, yes, Alistair Darling, 70 years. Thoroughly decent individual. Thoroughly competent at his job. No scandal, no scandal, which is why most people probably won't remember him, tragically, um, simply because he was a guy who got on with his job and a guy who um, ultimately will go down in history as being just a good chancellor. I mean, that's all I suppose you can expect when you are in that field of work. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. As we get our next guest up this evening, I did promise you an extract from uh, for Anthony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain was uh, the most wonderful of chefs uh, in the, in uh, and uh, around sort of about 10 years ago, tragically committed suicide. I mean, mental health being the issue that it is absolutely enormous. And Anthony Bourdain wrote this eviscerating column about uh, about Henry Kissinger. You would think, why would a chef uh, embark on that sort of evisceration of somebody's character? But it is fascinating to see how it happens. And he is certainly, uh, uh, Anthony Bourdain, a character who will be remembered from the world of cooking. I absolutely loved Anthony Bourdain's assessment of cooking. I could never use his cookbook, of course, because uh, it's American and you know, they describe cuts of meat differently and I was too lazy to find out. But I will share with you his uh, assault, I think it was safe to say, on the character of Henry Kissinger, who's died at the age of 100. In a moment, uh, we will talk to Robert Atwell. Robert Atwell is Chief Executive at Discovery Insure. Um, some fascinating insights here. And again, two insurance stories back to back. My producers are spoiling you. Um, and they collect lots of data. There are people who mine the data to uh, help you understand the way the world works, to help them understand the way the world works and help them manage their risk. And so if you've got uh, a, tele- is it a telematics device in your car, um, it'll tell you whether you're driving too fast, whether you are driving too aggressively, too recklessly, too swervily, uh, too speedily up a hill or down a hill. And you get really good feedback from these things. Sometimes it can be having like a backseat driver and be quite annoying. But ultimately, what they're trying to do is ensure that you are safer on the road and their risk of paying out claims is considerably lower. And they've got some, some fabulous data to share with you here on The Money Show on this Thursday evening which is brought to you by APSA CIB. Voted overall best service uh, business function in Africa by the Euro Money Cash Management Survey 2023.
We'll skip ahead a little and talk to Rob Lewison, who's Head of Responsible Investment at the Old Mutual Investment Group. Uh, it's good to have you on The Money Show this evening, Rob Lewison. I'm told I may be going to COP28 next week. I'm looking forward to uh, a couple of days in Dubai and learning more about climate change and learning more about uh, what COP is trying to do in the world. Uh, and w- one gets a little bit cynical about these gatherings. One gets a bit cynical about these battles against climate change. And you've made a fairly compelling argument, I think, in terms of saying, hold on a second, we do need to try at least to get control of something right now which feels like it's running out of control and that is the rate at which the planet is warming and the climate is changing. Uh, Good evening, Bruce, and good evening to all the listeners. Um, Absolutely spot on there. Um, uh, It's easy to throw up your hands and say, um, you know, this cop's been held in a, you know, a fossil fuel state that uh, is really going to be focused on fossil fuels, but uh, I would say that that is actually this is uh, again an opportunity. I, I, I don't think it will be the most influential cop out there. Um, there will there have been, uh, as you know, so, uh, every year it's a check in, and some years are more uh, sort of uh, more have been more important than others, but nonetheless. My sense is that COP28 is important, I think, for a number of reasons. I mean, the first, the first major one, and I think it is uh, the major one, uh, is that it's uh, the first global stock take of where we are, really, relatively speaking, since the, uh, the so-called uh, famous COP in Paris, COP21 in 2015, where they, uh, where they created the framework for the, the commitment to net zero and a one and a half degree, uh, well, sorry, a, a two degree or less uh, outcome. Now, we, we will take stock uh, at, at this COP um, to see where where we at, and the national defined contributions, which we all know is that each country's uh, we sliced up high in terms of what our carbon emission profile could be, um, and then we uh, said that we'd commit to that particular one. Now. The question is, of course, is the pie has the pie grown bigger, and have the the, the slice has been allocated fairly according uh, to the in the last eight years or so? Um, and I think that's going to be a very important part of of yeah. the, 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 this particular COP. Famously, famously, Greta Thunberg described the UN climate summits as just blah blah blah. Very famously. I mean, that is her most famous quote in history. Um, and uh, it, there is a frustration that despite all of these cops, I mean, this is COP28, so it means there'd be 27 before this. All of these yeah. gatherings, it's talk, 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 it's setting target, 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 and then nobody really sticks to the target, target, target because there are other things that are more important, saving the economy, saving livelihoods, all of that sort of stuff, which is the, the trade-off of everyday politicians. Uh, and you have to wonder whether or not this is going to contribute to making uh, the world our children inherit a little bit better than the one we fear it might be. Uh, the reason for them, myself, Bruce, I'm very, very cognizant of that. It's a very specific fact. Um, and as much as Greta uh, can uh, uh, charge uh, politicians for a lot of blah, 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 uh, I'd like to like, focus a little bit on the fact. Um, and one, one, one in particular is, is actually quite interesting. Uh, and it, it look, talks to uh, catalyzing growth into uh, the green economy since the Paris Agreement in 2015. 
And um, I saw a very interesting uh, research note uh, which shows the percentage of of revenue that is currently in, uh, invested into into the green economy and the percentage of a market cap that is in, uh, that, that companies that are represented and produce revenue in the green economy constitute of the global economy. So you think to yourself, well, what, what I would already put it to you, Bruce, how much do you think percentage of the, uh, the global economy currently uh, in terms of market cap uh, constitutes? Um, no, again, instinctively, I want to say 7%, but it's probably 27%. I have not the vaguest idea, Rob. Not the vaguest idea. So let's, let it, let you, you're probably half, uh, halfway, in, not halfway in between, but it's, it's just shy of 10% of okay. global equity. Now, it seems okay. Um, we have seen since 2015 that number, the percentage rise from, and I'm, I'm looking at my notes here, from about five to ten, from in so in about say seven years, six, seven, eight years now, even twenty-three is over. We've doubled our uh, the, the the amount of uh, of companies that are contributing to a, a the, the green economy that are accelerating the shift to a, a, a one and a half degree trajectory in our, in our place. So. Sorry, we have to leave it there, Rob Lewison. Thank you, the head of responsible investment at Old Mutual. That's interesting, actually. The number of companies involved in the green economy doubling in recent years. That's a good stat, actually, in the fight against climate change. Thank you, Rob Lewison, the head of responsible investment at the Old Mutual Investment Group. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. The world is having a huge amount of fun with the memories of Charlie Munger and his extraordinary ability to really explain massively complex issues in the simplest of terms. And Charlie Munger will go down, I think, in history of as really one of the great communicators around money. He once said EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, debt and, uh, and, and uh, amortization. Is that what it is? I think that's what EBITDA is. Ah, uh, bull dust. He used a different word, earnings. Um, and he just said, you know, you invest in companies that translate the most revenue they can into net income. And the trouble with this is that most companies go, well, look at our revenue growth. You know a company's in trouble when uh, the, the, the dirge of press release that you receive and you're sent. You go, oh, look how revenues grew. And our EBITDA grew, and our adjusted EBITDA grew by this amount. So if we ignored all the bad stuff that happened in the year, we really did very well. The problem is, when it comes down to net income, which is, I think, the purest sort of sense of whether a company is growing or not, you find that there's very little left. And you've got to be very, very careful, very, very cautious. And you could do a lot worse than read the wisdom of the late Charlie Munger, who died at the age of 99 yesterday. The Money Show is brought to you by ABSA CIB, voted overall best service business function in Africa by the Euro Money Cash Management Survey 2023. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702.
Mike Will shared this earlier on Cape Talk, so if you're listening to it again, I apologize. Uh, but it's so good that it has to be shared. And I, you know, I understand that uh, Henry Kissinger is going to upset a lot of people. He's died today at the age of 100. He was a, a prolific diplomat of the 1970s. He'd emerged from academia and into politics. And then, as uh, the New Yorker described, his third stage of life was the one where he made all the money and he went out to dinner and would regale people with tales and, and forecasts and a really deep insight, I think, into what was happening in the world of in, in the world of politics, in the world of diplomacy. Um, he certainly is not going to go down in history as a peacemaker. I think too many people have had too many negative memories of him. Anthony Bourdain, the chef who clearly loved Cambodia, wrote this about Henry Kissinger. Once you've been to Cambodia, you'll never stop wanting to beat Henry Kissinger to death with your bare hands. You'll never again be able to open a newspaper and read about the treacherous, prevaricating, murderous scumbag sitting down for a nice chat with Charlie Rose or attending some black tie affair for a new glossy magazine without choking. Witness what Henry did in Cambodia, the fruits of his genius for statesmanship, and you will never understand why he's not sitting in the dock at The Hague next to Milosevic. That's Slobodan Milosevic of Serbia fame. While Henry continues to nibble nori rolls and remaki at A-list parties, Cambodia, the neutral nation he secretly and illegally bombed, invaded, undermined, and then threw to the dogs, is still trying to raise itself up and rem- on its one remaining leg. The consequences of actions of in history, 50 years later, still being felt and clearly upsetting Anthony Bourdain. But there's nothing I like more than reading a most eviscerating. And I think we are far too nice to the dead in South Africa. I really do. I want to see obituaries of the dead who've re- who have plundered our country. And I actually want to, maybe there's a little hobby during the holidays. Maybe I'll start writing obituaries to publish for people I expect of feeling a little peaky. Uh, and just some, some really critical obituaries of people. I think we are far too nice. Oh, but they love their spaniel, but, you know, took 10 billion rand out of a state-owned enterprise, or whatever it might be. We need to be more critical, even of the dead. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. Enough of that rant. We're due for another big fuel price cut next week, which is good news. But there's been a study by Discovery Insure, and it's showing that increases in the cost of fuel are actually costing much, much more than we think. And as part of your insurance, many insurance companies, including Discovery, who we get to speak to their CEO right now, put uh, telematics devices. They they measure the speed that you drive, the the, the rate of your turn, the way you brake, the way you overtake, uh, the way you do anything, whether you're driving in the day or the night, whether or not you are Weaving about the road. I wonder what the big trends are. Let's find out from Robert Atwell, who's the chief executive at Discovery Insure, who joins us from Joburg this evening. What are the bigger trends that you're seeing in the way in which we're driving our cars, Robert? Evening, Bruce, and, and evening to your listeners as well. Um, this, this study has really been fascinating, um, and we're really seeing in our data um, really clients changing their driving behavior and, and their fuel, fuel spend, how they spend their fuel. Um, kind of with all these fuel increases you're seeing. Um, I think really interestingly, I think on average, we're seeing clients are now taking five less work trips per month um, compared to kind of what they did one year ago. Um, and, and what we really believe is that these clients who can work from home are doing that. Um, and I think with the increase in accessibility of online shopping, I mean, clients are really opting to do that, um, to, to save that one trip to the grocery store and, and reduce their fuel bill. But you are noticing differences. I mean, I suppose when fuel goes up to 27 rand a litre, and it's still 
you know, half the price of many European countries who tax fuel to death uh, more than we do, and we already pay enough tax on our fuel, um, you actually see that driving habits do change. People are actually driving fewer kilometers. People are actually making conscious choices to, to move around less. Yeah, Bruce, that is exactly it. I think we're seeing in the fuel spend data that clients are even opting to not even fill their fuel tank in some months, um, definitely showing the financial pressure that consumers are under. Uh, talk to me then about the way in which we're driving. You're actually noticing that despite the higher cost, despite the risk of being caught, despite everything we're told about the dangers of speed, there is more um, speeding. Bruce, very interesting. I think um, typically the notion is that our youngest drivers, our, our 20 to 25-year-olds, um, are the most reckless. Um, interesting, our data is now showing us um, that our young 30-year-olds um, have become the, the speedsters on the road, um, which I think is a fascinating insight. Um, we're, we're not really sure why. Um, so our job now is to make sure that the program can change behavior and make sure that the 30-year-old speedsters um, are rewarded for, for driving a little bit slower um, and ultimately, that's how the program works. It's a program for anyone, for the young and the old, um, to make Does, sure we can change their driving behaviour. Uh, I mean, you, you give you you're holding out carrots, but does this not need a bit more stick? Uh, and I wonder if one of the reasons why we've got such a high death rate on our roads is because we drive with impunity because we don't believe we're going to be caught for driving with impunity so therefore there's no consequence and yes so you don't give me my cappuccino this month but boy i enjoyed the drive and so that was kind of worth it I, i'm not sure that we don't need to change the equation a little bit a little less carrot and a bit more sick but that doesn't work well for your business model i suppose yeah bruce i mean that's exactly it i think how our shared value model really works is that we incentivize our clients to to change their driving behavior um, we're very vocal around what we use telematics data for, um, particularly for just determining the time and location of an incident, um, especially if it takes a high impact on your vehicle. Um, and we can then reach out to make sure that you're safe. But I think ultimately um, it will go kind of against the philosophy of sharing value with our clients if we took more of a stick approach. If you notice on my, let's say I was a discovery client and I had had 10 speeding infractions in the last month. I drove 130 in a 100 kilometer zone, 90 in a 60 kilometer zone i did it 10 times in the last month and then i have an accident does it change the outcome of your assessment of that particular accident because you say here is evidence of your reckless behavior in the month leading up to this accident which was not your fault but we don't like the way you've been driving up until now so we have to assume that perhaps you were doing something wrong in this particular case bruce it's a great question and one we often get and it's an unequivocal no um, like I mentioned, we actually only use it for, for determining time and, time and location, um, which is important for us. And, and we really hope that kind of the behavior change program um, stops people from speeding as much um, as you mentioned before. And, and, and that's it. I mean, we also respect the rules of the road and, and the traffic police to also police people for reckless driving to that extent. Different scenario. Different scenario. Um, somebody dies in an accident and my track record is well, wasn't my fault but somebody died in an accident and the metro cops from the city where the accident happens send a court order along to discovery insurance say we'd like to see this person's driving record we want to assess whether or not this person has got a track record of reckless driving because somebody has died now and there are consequences or more likely actually somebody launches a civil claim because a family member has died and a breadwinner has died in a family and they want to sue the individual who may have caused the accident or was the other party in the accident. What happens then? 
So we take our clients, obviously, confidentiality and, and their data protection really, really seriously. Um, in such a case, we would only respond to, to a court order um, that requires us to release the data. But under any other circumstances, um, unfortunately, that data would stay within kind of the Discovery, the Discovery Insure database. Has that happened yet? Um, not to my knowledge, no. Okay, that's just an interesting phenomenon because there is this huge pool of information about the way we drive. I mean, on average, we're seeing that uh, people are now taking five fewer trips to work per month than they were um, a year ago. That tells us about work from home, uh, perhaps. Uh, It also, and I love this one, if you live in an environment where there are lots of traffic jams, you will use more petrol. Idling is a terrible waste of fuel. Um, and if you're idling, you're using a lot of fuel. So the, the lesson there, I suppose, is to drive off peak more. And the busiest time on the roads, sort of like the peak drive time, is 06.45 in the morning. I found that fascinating. Bruce, exactly. I mean, it, it's, it's also fairly intuitive. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of parents taking their children to school during that time. Um, but I think clients... Um, should be able to manage their driving time quite carefully by, by either leaving a little bit earlier, um, they can probably save about 14% of time on the road, um, or then a little bit later. And I think importantly, definitely worth checking the load shedding schedules um, before you make that trip. I think we've all been frustrated <laughs> by those traffic lights um, being out um, while you're going to work. Yeah, no, that, 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 that. Um, and then the weirdest one of all, and, and, and this comes back to policing, I suspect, Western Cape drivers and women is this women generally, not women in the Western Cape, but Western Cape drivers generally, and women speed the least. So women are better drivers than men, I think we know this, but Western Cape drivers speed less than anyone else in the country. That has got to come down to perhaps a more cautious approach to uh, Jordan Hill-Lewis and the way in which he fundamentally, I think, treats people who break the rules, as we saw in the, in the taxi blockades and all of that stuff. Bruce, I'm going to have to be careful I answer this question to not upset more than half of your listeners. Um, but interestingly, I think women speed less often than men, um, but we have to say that they are more distracted than men um, by how they use their phones while they're driving, unfortunately. Um, these are gender stereotypes, so I'm going to be careful what I say. No, no, but um, no, this is data. This is not a gender stereotype. This is data. This is proof, Robert. I mean, you, so you've got evidence that shows they speed less. Maybe they're speeding less because they're playing with their phones more. I don't know. But, but so certainly there's, there's data to suggest that. <laughs> no, so, so we're not seeing data that suggests that. But uh, we'd also have men that speed less, of course. So I think um, these are all averages um, and, and interesting insights. What is the biggest, highest speed you've clocked on Discovery Insure? And what did you do when you saw, I don't know, if, it, if Sean Summers had had uh, 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 one of these telematics things on the day he drove his Ferrari and clocked over 200 k's an hour or whatever the speed was 15 years ago, we have long memories here, would you have sent him a note to say, please slow down? We wouldn't have. So he would have definitely earned, obviously, zero rewards for his driving behavior that day. He would have been very um, upset about that, yeah. And he definitely would not have received a, a decent fuel reward. I mean, our clients get 50% back on fuel, our best driver. Yeah. And I think he would not have been eligible. Um, but, yeah, certainly he would have definitely been penalized in terms of the points he should have received. Robert, thank you. Robert Atwell, Chief Executive at Discovery Insurance. That thing, isn't it? Carrot and stick. Uh, they do more carrot. They reward you for doing good things. You don't get punished for doing the bad stuff. And I wonder what would happen. Uh, it should somebody in a civil claim against another driver say, I demand to see their driving records. I'm aware of the fact that their insurance company uses telematics and gets a court order. I wonder how that would change 
the way in which people think about the way they drive in one of the most dangerous places on earth to drive. It's terrifying. The Money Show. Small business. With Pablo Fatidis. Small business feature brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank built for your business. Succession success. That's a lot of sisses, whatever that is, um, uh, Pablo. Um, really understanding how your small business will continue when you're no longer around to run your business. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not so sure it's that, Bruce. Um, <laughs> I'm going to look at it rather from um, if you don't get it right, you're going to be toast. And I'll tell you the reason why. I think there's some big trends that are emerging that will make successful succession a key, key, key requirement for anybody who has invested 5, 20, 30 years in a business and hopes to get some sort of retirement or return or wealth creation moment out of it. And I'll tell you the reason why. We are sitting in a situation where across most economies, within the medium-sized, small to medium-sized businesses, so businesses doing from, let's say, 10, 15 million a year up to 150, 200 million a year in annual revenues. So within that band, by far, the majority sit in the hands of a baby boomer generation. Um, And these are people who are going to be looking to retire soon and exit out of the business between now and 20, let's say, 30 But the environment of exiting has changed. And recently, um, I've had the the fortunate opportunity of of running a series of of really interesting, let's call it growth workshops about, so so the the stats are 55 business owners, uh, 23 of those 55 were over the age of 55. And of those 18 had far bigger businesses before COVID than they do today. And before COVID, there was a very active M&A environment in the sense that you could get some really nice multiples on your profit. Before COVID, these multiples were ranging anywhere between four to six to seven. And today, the average multiples are starting at two, two and a half, moving up to four if you are in a very fortunate position. And this has been largely driven because of interest rates and inflation, but mostly it's been driven because of uncertainty. So as this baby boomer generation is going to be looking to exit over the next five, seven years ahead, firstly, businesses are far less profitable today than they were pre-COVID. And secondly, the environment of buyers out there is far tighter than it ever was before. And that means exiting by succession, in other words, succeeding the business to the next tier of management and leadership is going to be a more likely exit path going forward. It's ultimately sensible, isn't it? Because you, you could, if you do it properly, you ensure the sustainability of the business. Well, you ensure the sustainability of the business, but more importantly, and you, you, you know, I, I keep on saying more importantly, so ensuring the sustainability of the business is essential for the prosperity of a country. The only the only policies that I have seen globally at the moment, Bruce, that recognize this are coming out of the EU, of all places. So in the EU, um, there's a market of approximately one and a half to two million mid-sized businesses. The, uh, there's an estimate of around 72% of them being in the hands of baby boomers. 
and there are policies being placed and considered and debated in think tanks around how to ensure continuity of those businesses by preventing the following scenario. The scenario is, as you get older and you're in the business, despite the fact that you might have done well, the idea was you were always going to exit through a third-party sale. In other words, somebody would knock on your door, say, Bruce, congratulations, fantastic. You have built a beautiful business over the last 30 years, and you are producing uh, 5 million rands worth of profit, and we are going to pay you out a 4-5 multiple, and you can take your 20, 30, 40 million rand as your exit an eventual return on investment for the sacrifice of time and 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 commitment to your business and and enjoy your golden years they can see that that is highly highly unlikely and yet their concerns are to the extent that you can't get that then as a business owner you're going to say well i'm going to sit in the saddle for a far longer period i'm going to try and stretch my runway well beyond my interest and appetite to grow the business. And I'm seeing businesses now in the hands of people who are stretching their income streams, not with the intent to grow the business, but because of fear that they won't have enough for when they do exit. And what that does to a business is it eventually kills it. Nobody wants to work in a business that's tired and a business that doesn't invest in growth by bringing on new ideas, bringing in new markets, bringing in new innovation, doesn't attract young vibrancy within the employee base itself. And it becomes a self-fulfilling, perpetuating philosophy or rather outcome of a death spiral. And Bruce, I've never seen it before, but in the last two years, it's now becoming fairly consistent every month I'm happening upon businesses that are showing these signs and in, in very, very tangible terms. So, Pablo, uh, what's the process? What do we need to do to ensure that this happens in a way that is planned, is sensible, and is in our best interests? So, look, the first thing is just understand and accept that the world has changed. It really has. There are still many people yearning back or believing falsely, in my view, that the world pre-COVID is the world that we are moving back to. In other words, we're just going through a far longer or slower recovery. I'm not seeing it that way. Pre-COVID, we were facing between four to five variables that were creating the uncertainty of the future. Now, post-COVID, we're facing somewhere between seven to nine variables. It's become, it's become a lot tougher out there. Now, it's going to remain so for some time. Pre-COVID, you would have been able to very comfortably create an exit plan that would run over two, maybe three years. Nowadays, that exit plan is a four to six year uh, stretch. So firstly, understand that you need time. The next thing is you need an approach and you need to pay attention to the fact that once you have an approach, a strategy, a plan, you can work the plan. But the single biggest challenge, Bruce, where I see it fail consistently is despite the fact that you might have a plan, if you don't have a framework of delegation, a method of delegation to initially transfer operational and then managerial and then leadership responsibilities 
from yourself to the next tier of leadership, whether they be individual employees, a group of employees, or family. If you don't get that delegation process right, you're going to find yourself where every time you attempt to transfer the responsibilities, which is an essential and vital aspect of succession, it keeps on coming back to you. And if you repeat that cycle again and again and again, you both become cynical, saying that you can't get the right people to do the right thing. But more importantly, you push yourself to the edge of the abyss. Avoid it by being proactive. And being proactive is give yourself a five to six year exit time frame, put a proper plan in place to succeed the business to the next generation, and then work that plan by getting delegation 100% right. But it's about leadership, isn't it? It's about ensuring that the right leadership comes in and the right leadership takes over from you. And it's going to have to be paid for. It's going to really ensure that you are in a better position three, four, five years, depending on how good you are at the stuff, and ensuring you've got the right person in place. Because also, if you leave it quite late in the process, what happens if you've made a mistake down the way? And actually, a year in, you realize, oh, hell, I've got to do this all over again. Completely. Yeah. In fact, you know, over this year, I've seen six or seven deal structures that really allow the exit to take place over a period of time. And more importantly, the team that you're succeeding the business to places them in a position where they can afford to acquire your shares in the business to give you your capital exit and to enable them not to suck out every penny from the business nor bond themselves to the nth degree, but to allow through growing the business over that five, six year period, have the business itself pay for your exit and allow for the shares to be transferred across. There's some very innovative structures that are coming. The Money Show. Personal Finance with Warren Ingram. Warren Ingram is a financial advisor. He's a certified financial planner. He's a co-founder and director at Galileo Capital. I've always had the impression, Warren, and you can I think you're about to correct me on this, that you were a bit of a stickler for the rules. You were that kid who was never beaten. You were that kid who never got into trouble because you followed the rules to the letter. You went into university and you followed the rules. You went into your business and you followed the rules. You're a rule follower. And I say that with respect, but I think you're a rule follower. It's an important tee-up to what we're going to talk about next. Uh, you, 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 I would say you're probably half right uh, with those comments, Bruce. I, I loved following rules if, if I made them for myself, but I hated following rules when other people told me what to do. They can hate following rules, but I suspect you do. I mean, we know you're not a dedicated follower of fashion, but I do suspect you're a dedicated follower of rules. <laughs> when, when it comes to, to money and, and investing and saving and just personal finance generally, we, we kind of are taught, and you look at book titles, the rules of doing this, the rules of doing that, rules, 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 rules. And I think that's why most personal finance advice and books and why so much information about personal finance fails because – Precisely your reaction to rules is you what you want me to do what? No, go away. I think that's true, isn't it? I think it's exactly right, Bruce. And, and you know, and, and I'm I can kind of hear myself, um, you know, uh, uh, laying out rules actually on this show over over many years. And 
and realizing with, with the benefit of time, experience, some some gray hairs, uh, and and maybe a deeper understanding of of actually how how we as humans make decisions and sometimes avoid making decisions. That that actually there, there are rules that are worth following and and rules that are that are are really you know uh, shouldn't be broken at all. But but then there are some where, where we should be flexible and and maybe a bit. Uh, you know, a bit more relaxed um, and a bit more balanced in in the way that we work, and uh, and and especially, I think, understanding that you know we we aren't all the same as as people, and some of us are really motivated by by uh, you know maybe little luxuries, and some of us are motivated by big luxuries, or whatever it is, uh, and, and some of us just want a set of rules, and we'll stick to those rules no matter what. And and the most motivating thing for us is to to stay stay in the lane, and and you know, kind of go from point A to point B. And and other people couldn't think of anything worse and would would be totally demotivated by 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 staying in one little lane and doing one thing so so i think it's understanding ourselves as as, as human beings and uh, the, the one caveat with all of this maybe i should start with is uh, it's understanding our real selves and be, and being really honest you know with, with who we are and what we are and, and not uh, tr- trying to pretend you know you know that we were something different you know if you're if you are a rule follower that's great don't, don't, don't try and be a, a money rebel I, I still think if you follow all the rules you, you you get you know you get to your destination whatever it is financial freedom if that's what motivates you you'll get there much more quickly than than kind of following a meandering path but but there are people that will follow a meandering path and and get to financial freedom and, and be really happy with the way that they got there even if it took them a few years longer but but i think we need to know ourselves as the starting point bruce okay now let's i mean in life there are there's some rules you can bend there's some rules you can break there's some rules however that you should never break can we divide them into i don't know maybe the the bendable breakables and the unbreakables Okay, let, let's start with the breakables because there aren't as many as there are the unbreakables. Of course, and and <laughs> the, the the first one is, uh, and I, I'm I'm guilty. I've I've told this to to people over over years. Uh, you know, pay off your home loan as fast as you possibly can. That that's that for me was was kind of a golden rule. Uh, you know, I don't. I've never been comfortable with with having debt, and and I think you know when you owe money. Uh, to to an institution, the the thing to understand then is that you know that that institution is is one of your bosses. You know you you might be self employed. That that means you've got two bosses, you and your and your bank to whom you owe money. But but I think understanding that there are times when when paying off your home loan um, as fast as possible isn't the best idea, and and it's determined by a couple of things. But the primary thing is the interest rates that you're paying. So when interest rates are high, like they are now, then almost everybody is paying, uh, you know, their home loan off at a rate of probably, you know, at best nine and a half. But you know, some people might be paying it off at eleven percent yeah. a year. Um, and in that instance, I, I think there is every justification for for paying off your your mortgage as fast as you as you can with without fundamentally you know compromising life where you you know you can't eat you can't you know get any enjoyment from life because every cent goes in, into the mortgage i'm not i'm not not going to that extreme but but i am saying you know you know when, when interest rates let's just say interest rates are 11% on your mortgage just to understand that you know the stock market in a in a good 5 year period will probably give you 13% a, a year over 5 years but but that's you know that's in a good time in a in a bad time it might give you just over zero per year over 5 years your home loan at 11% a year is a guaranteed return that that's the way i look at it a guaranteed tax free return every cent you put in there is saving you 11% that you don't have to pay and you don't have to pay tax that's a great time to to pay off your home loan 
But when interest rates are lower, and, and we certainly came, come out of a time when interest rates were much lower, we, we might go back there again in the future. Uh, let's say they're sitting at 7% on your mortgage or 8%, um, and, and the stock market still you know, could, could give you 12 or 13 over a five-year period, then perhaps it makes sense to say, well, I'll pay off my home loan a little bit more quickly, so you don't do it over the full 20-year period, but actually I'm going to take some of that that extra money I was putting into my home loan, and I'm going to put it into investments that give me a bit. So that's the first bendable rule Warren, you're dropping out, unfortunately. Yeah, okay. So, sorry, just that last uh, 10 seconds, because we lost you, unfortunately. You're back. Um, the, this bendable rule, the first bendable rule, don't necessarily be completely fixated on paying off the mortgage. You can spread your risk a little bit. It, that, that's exactly right, Bruce. So, so you can do it when, when interest rates are low, um, you know, th- then take the time to, to, to add that extra money to your investments. But but when interest rates are high, then, then take that money and put it into the mortgage and, and get it out of your life as, as fast as you possibly can. Another one that surprises me is the rule that says don't spend on luxuries, don't waste your money on nonsense and tat and joy and happiness and uh, spoiling yourself. But you're kind of quite flexible on that uh, in terms of uh, maybe not every day and not every retail shop and not every imported brand and not every handbag or whatever it might be that your proclivity is. But don't don't be snoop, I think is the word. Uh, yeah, I think that is the technical word that the accountants use, Bruce. <laughs> um, and and so uh, just understanding how we work, you know, actually we learn this from from the the, the personal trainers and you know the good ones and the good dietitians. Uh, one of the things that they will do is they'll you know a good dietitian will say to you, you know, have a cheat day, have a cheat meal. You know, um, the, the the good personal trainer will will give you a very strict training program, but they'll also give you time off, and and, and that's a reward for working hard. Uh, and and I think it's the same with money. We we cannot live in an environment, you know, day to day, month after month, year after year, where, where we, you know, kind of live in a, like a hermit on a hill with with absolutely no joy from 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 the money that we're generating from our our work. But we we need to have small little goals that that we can work towards. You know, whether it's a weekly goal or a monthly goal, you know, at most a yearly goal, something small. If you know, if your if your financial position is compromised, where, where you you work towards something. You know, for, for me, for example, I get my savings goal done as fast as I possibly can at the beginning of the year, and then I know later in the year I can I can relax a bit and, and use some of that money to go on holidays. That's my big motivator. You know, go go, go and travel a bit. Uh, and, and so I know if I save hard at the start of the year, I've got to, I've got capacity to re- reward myself later. And for other people, that might be, you know, that, that extra coffee. It might be the, whatever it might be. But I think d- don't deny yourself everything. And, and Okay, we're having trouble with Warren's line. We're going to try and get him on a different line. I think that's uh, probably the sensible idea. Unusual uh, on uh, on this particular part of the show, but we'll just simply get a better connection. Co-founder Galileo Capital, Warren Ingram with us this evening. Good common sense financial guidance on a Thursday night. The breakable rules. There's one more breakable rule, I wonder. And that is about what you think enough is. And then I want to get on to the unbreakables because those are really important. These are the ones you're not allowed to break. Not even for a moment. Not for any, you may not even think about breaking them in a moment. The Money Show. Personal Finance with Warren Ingram. 
Back with Warren Ingram this evening. Uh, not all personal finance rules are cast in stone, believe it or not. We've already dispelled the myth that you should always pay off your home loan quickly. You can, after a period of time, look at alternatives in terms of ensuring that you invest. Not this is an opportunity for you to spend. It's about putting money away in addition to paying money into your mortgage. And then you can spend a bit on luxuries, but balance it out. Don't be a fool about these things. Warren, how much is enough? What is enough? I think it's a it's a great um, question we all grapple with over our over our careers when we're building up to to that you know that famed financial freedom day, uh, and and what you realise is when you start out as a youngster you know you, you might be starting work at twenty one twenty two, uh, and and for for that person you know a thirty five year old is really old and and they would say to themselves I'm hitting financial freedom at at, at you know thirty thirty five that's the absolute longest I'm ever going to work. Uh, and and as they get older and 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 you know they they realize that you know living in a quarter bedroom flat, uh, you know, and, and eating dried oats every single day to to kind of save as much as they can is is not necessarily the life that they want to live for the rest of their lives. They they start to adjust and they they start to spend a little bit more and 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 get a bit more enjoyment out of life and and so that that number that they had in mind to be able to retire at or, or stop working at thirty five, uh, they, they realize is just simply not enough and and so they adjust and and as they get older they they push that 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 time frame. Up because the number they need to get to financial freedom gets a bit bigger and and just understanding that that's actually okay you know, b- being being really fixated on on working you know incredibly hard and sacrificing everything to to get to that f- financial freedom goal and, and and the movement's called the fire movement you know um, Financially independent, retire early. It's a wonderful idea, except for the fact that you then spend, you know, if you're 30 at, uh, and you reach your 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 financial freedom number at at 30, you, you might live for another 70 years with a really compromised, you know, kind of low quality life because you know you, you've got to really limit your expenses. And so it's about finding that trade off to say, actually, your your enough number when you're 30 will, will not be the same as when you're 40 or 50 uh, and, and, and be okay with that. You know, it's, it's okay if you, if you get to a point where you've got sufficient money to, to live some kind of a lifestyle and, and, and then saying, I'm actually happy to work a bit longer because I'm working more and more on my own terms uh, and, and working to, towards kind of additional goals that, you know, that, that, that I can live a better life, a better quality of life that, that, than I initially planned for. And, and so working longer suddenly becomes something that's not necessarily necessarily a prison sentence where you, you, you know you're just stuck in something you absolutely hate choice, because yeah. now you're doing it out of a great greater choice absolutely right so those are the rules you can flex and break and bend um as long as you're not silly about it the rules and we're going to run short of time i suspect but the rules that you may not break these are the non-negotiables these are the things that if you break them they will hurt you in ways that you've never imagined you could be hurt um, I, I'm going to be quick because there, there's not a lot of explanation required. I think the first one is spend less than you earn every single year, and and that that's just unbreakable, sensible common sense. Uh, and and then the, the second is invest your 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 money for long term gains. You know, avoid the short term thinking where you say I'm going to take my money and and try and double it in the in the next year because uh, uh, you know anything that promises uh, a doubling of return is almost certain to give you a zero in the same time frame and and you just need to avoid that. Your your, your game here is 
long-term thinking around around investing. Uh, and, and then avoid expensive forms of debt like credit cards, personal loans, overdrafts, microloans. All of those cost you far more than you'll ever be able to generate um, you know, a, a, as a kind of a certain return on your investments. So if you've got those kinds of debts, I call them the bad debts, then, then get rid of them and get them out of your life as fast as possible. And then the next one is always have an emergency fund and, you know, very simply three to six months worth of your expenses in an account that you control so that you don't have to go into debt when when life happens. And and then, uh, you know, no matter what I said about the mortgage at the start of this uh, conversation, be debt free by the time you get to to retirement. You, you cannot owe anybody any money when you when you want to stop uh, working. Uh, and then lastly, Bruce, and it's kind of a newish one, is stop comparing yourself to others. <laughs> um, worrying about the Joneses and the Kamalos and how they yeah. live on social media. Uh, they look amazing. You know, their lives look amazing. The truth is you don't know what's actually going on in their lives. I, I can tell you more about that uh, because I see a lot of a lot of people's balance sheets. And, and, you know, the ones that look amazing on social media often have um, amazingly frightening balance sheets with debt as well. And, and that's just not a position to be in. So, so don't compare yourself. Okay, good. Thank you for those. Um, just you know, If you need to hear the rules again, listen to the podcast. They're good rules. Uh, spend less than you earn. Invest your money for long term. Don't do expensive debts like credit cards. Always have an emergency fund. Be debt free by the time you retire. And don't compare yourself. Morgan Housel is so big on this in, uh, in his book on money. Now, a question from Kenneth. I'm worried about my investments for next year. There are elections in the South Africa, the in the South Africa, in South Africa, the UK and the USA. All of them have potentially scary outcomes that could be bad for markets. How do I invest to protect myself from bad politicians? Great question. Um, um- I'm going to I'm going to answer that question um, right now, Kenneth. But I need to just jump on my soapbox for a second. Uh, we're, we're, our country's dealing with this very scary thing called NHI. Uh, not, not scary because uh, because all kind of employers in South Africa don't want their, their employees to have uh, better healthcare than they're getting at the moment. I think it's an absolute certainty that we all want uh, you know everybody in South Africa to get better healthcare than they're getting at the moment, and it's it should almost be kind of a fundamental right. The, the, so, so we're not talking about universal healthcare as a bad concept. We, I, I think, it's a fantastic concept. The, the, the issue we have is the, the, the road to hell that's paved with good intentions, and, and that's what's happening now. We've got NHI, and and it's kind of w- w- winding its way through through government and through parliament. You know, pretty much unchanged from when it first was uh, propositioned, uh, and and everybody who knows about this is kind of saying we think this is a great concept. There are certain parts of this legislation which are awful insane, and yes. cause enormous damage. Yeah. And and t- talking to medical professionals, uh, um, you, know, you know, a lot, and a, a lot of them are clients of mine. They, they're on a plane out of South Africa if it goes through in 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 the in the form that it is now. Talking to lots and lots of South Africans who are committed to stay in this country, the one thing they will not compromise on is proper health care for themselves, their workers, their families, their children. And and they are desperately worried that if this goes through in this way, they will not be able to look after their families from a healthcare point of view because the healthcare system will be gone 
will be destroyed. Uh, and that's not me saying that. That's that's the feedback we're getting. So so this is a plea for for politicians to at least for once just listen. Please adapt. Please take the feedback and do something about it. We can't compromise on, on life care on, on healthcare. We need to get better healthcare for everybody and okay. and public private partnerships are the way to go. So yeah. so back to Kenneth's question. Uh, yes, that's what uh, we were doing. Oh yes, I've forgotten for a moment, uh, Padre. Um, carry on. <laughs> he, he 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 ends with bad politicians. So I'm I'm starting there, and okay. and so um, I, I think understanding that when you invest money on the basis of of elections and and a view on how elections will work out, w- whatever country they're in, uh, j- just understand you're doing a couple of things. You're making a very short term investment decision based on a prediction, uh, and and what you don't know is actually the outcome of of that event. So in this case, an election in a country in in, in ours or anywhere else. So so firstly, uh, you can't really make an investment decision based on a prediction that that's completely uncertain, and and more importantly even if your 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 outcome is is right what, what you also need to predict is how the markets how other investors will perceive that outcome and what have they done with their money and what will they do with their money based on the information that then becomes available long after you've made your investment decision that in other words the investment the, the election results so so i think uh, you know kind of making radical investment decisions based on an election to come uh, and certainly one that you just have no idea how it's going to unfold is really not a good idea what, what you need to do is is be, be sure to either sit on the sidelines if you're that worried and wait for things to unfold and and don't be radical in your in your, your decision making so if it's south africa you're really worried about a bad outcome next year don't go and send all of your money out of south africa in anticipation you know and sell your house and all of those things be, because if you're if your fear is wrong, you know, if, if what you predicted is is doesn't unfold, uh, and actually things work out better, and and the the rand gets stronger and the economy gets better and house prices go up, you, you might be in a position where you're bringing back money to to live, uh, and you might have lost 10, 20, or thirty percent of your entire wealth based on a completely wrong prediction. It's just not a way to go. So so what you should be doing is is you know spread your investments as always. Do a lot of diversification. Have have money across a range of economies, markets, and sectors. Uh, and and so if you're right that you know things go wrong um, and 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 the uh, the election outcome is wrong for you, a good portion of your money will be exposed to markets outside of where you need to be. But but if your if your election result goes better than you hoped, um, and and th- then a portion of your money here's, will benefit from that. Here's the thing about Kenneth's question though: it's not asking just about South Africa. It's saying the UK could go awry, the United States could go awry. That's the risk here because yeah, it's easy if you can diversify from your own country. But there's a thing, a statement called what, out of the frying pan and into the fire. And I think that's what he's scared of. So, so that and 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 so you know again the, the election outcome in America might not go the way I don't know what what um what a good election outcome in, <laughs> is frankly in America at the moment but 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 the point is w- worrying about an election outcome and 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 thinking that that's going to let let's just say ca- cause the American stock market to collapse it's it's probably wrong uh, you know and so and so the same with the UK I think having a spread right across the globe you know uh, w- w- will benefit because if something goes south in the US. 
you know, maybe it doesn't go south in the UK and South Africa and Japan and everywhere else where, where, where maybe things get better. Uh, it, it's just being really spread, Bruce. And, and, you know, one of the things, you know, it's the, the week that, that we find out about Charlie Munger, but, 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 uh, you, you know, Warren Buffett always said he didn't pay much attention to elections because, because good businesses will find a way to make money. And that's maybe my comment is, you know, invest in good businesses across many countries and, and don't worry as much about the elections. They are by definition unpredictable. And, and so, you know, spreading your risk is a great antidote to uncertainty. Warren Ingram at Galileo Capital. Thank you, Warren, very much indeed this Thursday evening. Warren-